Hey, y'all. Welcome back to the Don't Mom Alone podcast. I'm your host, Heather McFadden, and this is the place where I get to walk alongside you and connect you with people and resources so you know that you don't mom alone. And in this episode, it is number 435, and it's another compilation episode. This time, I've taken liberties with the concept from Saturday Night Live. I don't know if you know the show, SNL, but when they have someone host five times, they get a special jacket, and sometimes they do a skit about all of the five-timers in the club hanging out. Well, we have a five-timers club, and the five shows that I'm sharing today all come from guests that have been on the show more than five times, some of them up to 10 times. And one aspect of making the podcast that you may not be aware of, sometimes people will reach out to me and say, man, how do you keep finding content each week? Well, the challenge isn't finding content. The challenge is sifting through the different options. So I would kept track just so I wouldn't be lying. And daily I will get five to six different pitches of people who want to be on the podcast. And if you calculate that out for the year, that's thousands of options available to me. And I can only have one a week. So I'm super picky and I know that your time is valuable. I also don't want to add to the burden and the load you feel as a mom. And so I want to choose people that will extend grace, who will equip you. And so these guests, the Five Timers Club, you can know that they are ones I trust wholeheartedly. And the first inductees into the Don't Mom Alone Five Timers Club are two of my faves, David Thomas and Sissy Goff of Raising Boys and Girls. This is episode 160 on emotional milestones. Here we go. I shared this great line in a movie that I saw years ago that I thought was so on target about hitting that good middle space that emotions are like children. You cannot stuff them in the trunk, but you don't want them driving the car. You know, the the, the place that we want them is in the back seat. We're we're present with them, but they're not in charge. They're not driving the car, but they're not stuffed in the trunk of the car either. So boys and girls and their emotions would try and drive in completely different ways. Yes. For us, the starting point is figuring out what do I feel and then what to do with it. That's, that's the jumping off place. I think and, and really where every parent wants to be moving with kids, how do I help them identify accurately what it is that I feel like? I talk about with boys, the very first milestone is what we call emotional vocabulary. Mm. And that is really no different than developing a vocabulary that kids do in the school setting a lot that allows them to learn to read and write. But unless I have a mastery of language, I can't do that. And so the same with emotions, unless I have an emotional vocabulary, I cannot articulate what I feel and I sure can't figure out what to do with it. So that's really where we start with kids and with parents of just how do we help kids develop an emotional vocabulary? And certainly with the boys that I see, it's harder for them. I think one of the myths that I want to dispel on the front side with parents of boys is that we've long believed that boys don't have a lot of emotions. And I don't think that could be any less true. Like boys have plenty of emotions. They just have difficulty saying what they feel. I have a second and third grade group of boys I leave on Mondays and I had a little boy who came in for the very first time who looked noticeably nervous, trouble separating out from his mom. Understandably so. He was about to walk into a room of strangers Mm -hmm. and begin an experience. He had no idea what he was walking into. And midway through him talking for the first time, his little lip was quivering. Mm -hmm. And so this little guy in his group who is so seasoned, I call him, he's like an empathy ninja. He's unbelievable. <laughs> and he looked at this little boy and he said, what are you feeling? And he said, I'm bored. 
Now, you couldn't be bored in this room if you tried. Like, there are 12 second and third grade boys in there. It's like swimming in a pool of Red Bull. It's so much energy and exuberance. You couldn't be bored if you gave it your best attempt. But yeah. he doesn't know how to say, I feel nervous mm. because I just had to say goodbye to my mom or I feel scared because I don't know what we're going to be doing and I don't know any of you. So that's a great example of unless you know what you feel, you can't figure out what to do next. Well, I think that kind of bleeds over into the second milestone, which is perspective. And yeah. and David could speak to this more for boys. But I think what we're seeing is, you know, you think about it, emotions on a one to 10 scale and kids today are just living in the tent. They don't mm -hmm. have that sense of being able to regulate themselves. And I think even culturally, the higher rates of suicide, all the things that are going on, the prevalence of anxiety, which is the childhood epidemic in America today, those things that are really genuine are being talked about in this great way when they're from a genuine place, but it's also becoming the vernacular of kids in common places. And so we have kids who are young as eight that will throw out, I'm going to kill myself, boys and girls. And I, because I'm counseling primarily girls, I have a conversation a lot with just because you cry hard and can't breathe doesn't mean you're having a panic attack. None of us can breathe when we cry hard, but they're not worried yeah. anymore. They have anxiety. They're not sad. They're depressed. They're not crying hard. They're having a panic attack. They, we just have moved to this really grandiose scale that takes away from when kids really are having those struggles genuinely. And it's also removing the ability to accurately describe emotions. And so we talk about that in the class that we teach on this, on this topic, but how important it is to have a scale where in better moments with kids where they're doing okay to have them name what a 10 is for them. And then they can go back to if your child gets in the car after school and they've had a terrible day and says, this is the worst day of my whole life, that you can start with empathy and listen and then say, tell me what number that is on your scale. Mm -hmm. And then that gives them that automatic perspective that we feel like kids are really losing. And I think David and I would say both more than ever before in the years we've been counseling. What researchers will say is when something goes wrong in a boy's world, he blames somebody else. And when something goes wrong in a girl's world, she blames herself. Oh. And both of those things hinder resourcefulness because he's not taking responsibility and she's turned inward so much that she feels paralyzed in the midst of it. And so the question becomes, how do we empower each of them to move forward in a way where they're genuinely working on their own stuff? Yeah. What's the answer? <laughs> What? David, yeah, fix the fix our cultural problems right now, David, please. I love that you brought that up because I was thinking that boys go there on their own. They get stuck in blame on their own on a good day under the best of circumstances. So if culturally we're feeding them that idea, that message that it's all your fault, you're just perpetuating something that's already going on. And yeah. interestingly enough, that's I, I break down a lot of what to do with boys and blame and the social milestones. It made me think, I'm so glad you're willing to let us have a part B of this conversation. Yes, I know. We, we, we are not going to finish it all today, you, you guys. We're not going to answer all these we didn't, questions. We didn't get to everything today. Can we come back? Yes. And they sure have. They have been on the show either separately or together 10 times total. And so those, again, like I said, are all in the show notes. Always thankful for David and Sissy Goff. All right. Up next is another amazing repeat guest who was influential in my mothering before I even had a podcast through her books and through her speaking and just her kindness when I did meet her in person. Actually, I was pregnant with Knox. So that was almost 12 years ago. Sally Clarkson. She has been a constant in my life and just an encourager. 
She has so many wise things to say on so many different parts of our lives, um, our mothering, but our friendships and our homes. And even she did a great episode with one of her sons where she came on about parenting your different child. So check those episodes out. But this one is about creating a life-giving home, a place of belonging and becoming. Here we go. Tell us more about that. If a mom is unfamiliar with that concept, maybe she doesn't come from a home like that Mm -hmm. or she's never seen one before. Yeah. How do you picture that? How would you define a life-giving home? Well, I think um, our family has lived all over the world, traveled all over the world. So we've never had the advantage of having just one home. Mm. Uh, So this concept of the life-giving home is more about the life that goes on inside the home. And I think that God created all of us. I mean, you look at this amazing garden that he gave to Adam and Eve, and he was walking in the garden. He wanted to have companionship with them there, and it was a place of beauty. And inside that garden, he uh, He gave them purpose. He said, I'm giving you the whole world. Uh, bring your imprint on it. Subdue it. And and um, enjoy enjoy the artistry of your life's work together and have children. And so I think that home is a concept that God created before the fall to be good and foundational for all of us. I think home is a is a place where children learn about relationships, where there's comfort for people. There's uh, the great feasts and tastes, and uh, it's a place where you can be protected from the world. And yet, in this very busy uh, technological world. And in a place where families move all over the world and don't have that grandmother, grandfather, grand, you know, the cousins and so on and so forth anymore to support them, I feel like we've lost the imagination of the fact that all of us long to have a place where we belong, where there's beauty, where there's goodness, where it's safe from a difficult world. Mm. And um, I kind of began thinking about this and and capturing a vision for it many years ago when I was a single missionary. I was living in in Poland and I was working in communist countries where Christianity wasn't welcomed. And I remember thinking, oh, you know, if somebody would just have me over for a real meal Mm. or if they would just care about me or pray with me or or love me, I just felt so lonely Mm. for a place to belong. And so I began realizing way back then, my roommate and I, who we were both single, and we started inviting girls that we met in this um, communist country from different cities to our home on the weekends. And we would make big pots of tea and coffee, and there wasn't a lot of food. So we would chop up mushrooms and onions real small and call it hamburger. <laughs> and we would make these little toasts with hamburger, you know, with this stuff on it. And and we would light candles and put on music and just say, come, come be with us. And I began to realize that was the beginning of many cities that we lived in and worked in all over the world that most people love coming to a place where they feel like love is the foundation, unconditional Mm -hmm. acceptance, being able to share over food together, being understood, great conversations, a a wonderful place to sleep or just to fellowship. And so uh, Sarah, who is living in Oxford and as a single woman right now, um, and I decided that we wanted to write a book that would kind of reframe people's vision for Mm -hmm. what a home could be Mm -hmm. and give them some really practical steps to go forward because 
I realized that when I've created a, a wonderful life-giving place for me where the life of Christ and his love and his goodness and his creativity and uh, is is the foundation of where I live and where I make it a pleasant place for me to be and then invite people into that space that it really uh, embraces me mm. and helps me in all the difficult times of my life. One thing that's holding me back from having people in my home and, you know, just just the thing that frustrates me the most is all the Legos. <laughs> yeah, but they are but taking you know, over our front living room like nobody's business. So oh, that is so okay. I have this really uh, very clear memory when I was living in Vienna, Austria. Yeah. And um, this woman I met at church invited me over. I was so surprised. No one ever invited me. I always invited everyone else. Yeah. And she had three small children under six. And it wasn't, I remember thinking that it, it was a inviting home just because she lived there, but it wasn't a perfect home. Mm. And she took her arm and she kind of, I don't know how to describe this, but she placed it flat on the table and she pushed all the toys off onto the floor mm. right where I was. And she looked at me in the eyes and she said, just imagine you and I get to share this hour together. I am so happy. Mm. Mm. And didn't even say, I'm so sorry for the mess I'm, and no, make because, you feel awkward. And uh, now you have to comment on the mess. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I feel like um, sometimes the voices in our head uh, keep us from inviting people into our space. We need people. We need love. We need friendship. Yeah. And um, I, I just remember feeling so loved by her that day. Mm. And um, one of the things I would say is that there is no one kind of home. There are only foundations of the home that help people to feel welcome. And every single person who's listening to this podcast or who reads the book has total freedom and authority from God to live within the limitations of their personality, their preferences. If they like, um, you know, orange and yellow and contemporary furniture, or if they like old furniture, or if they like blues and reds, or or if they like uh, classical music instead of Celtic music or instead of uh, contemporary music, they have this incredible opportunity where they are to bring this, uh, the imprint of God's life through them into their home. Mm -hmm. So that was episode 107, and I always appreciate Sally's voice in my life. You should definitely go check out her other episodes. This uh, next guest is a little more sarcastic than Sally. In fact, uh, creating this clip, I definitely cut out some parts where I was like, oh my gosh, you can tell this was recorded almost 10 years ago because there's no way he could get away with saying some of these things now. But my guest that's coming up next is Kirk Martin. He is part of our Five Timers Club. He's been on the show seven times and he really helped me see all of my control issues. Now, whether I actually have adopted his advice is yet to be seen, but he had, has such a good perspective on calmly parenting. Celebrate Calm is his site. In this episode, he's helping us calmly parent our strong-willed child, episode 69. Here we go. Back yeah. when we were kids, we yes. would come home from school about yes. 3 o'clock, 3.30, and we were gone. And nobody knew what we were doing. Oh, yeah. We did mischievous stuff. Yeah. But think about it, Heather. How many decisions did we make as kids when there wasn't an adult around? Exactly. 
Yeah. Tons. And yeah. now, but now you've got a bright, will, uh, a bright, strong little child who gets up at 622 in the morning and we got to go, we got to go because you got to get dressed. We got to eat healthy. You got to get dressed, mm-hmm. brush your hair, brush your teeth, got to go to school. Then we've mm-hmm. got Taekwondo and piano practice and then you've got your homework and then we, and there's never a chance for them to really own any choices. So I know people will tell you, if you've got a strong-willed child, you better clamp down on him. But I mm. guarantee that will create so much defiance. So rather than create like this little box, I create a big box. So picture kind of this big, huge box. And I say to my strong-willed child, here are my expectations. Here are my boundaries and rules. But within this big box, I will give you some space to do things, to make choices that are different than mine, as long as we accomplish the same objective. Mm -hmm. But you know, the minute you kind of step back, and one of my favorite phrases is, when we step back as parents, it gives our kids space to step up and be responsible for themselves. But that morning when he comes and says, I'm eating breakfast. Now he has just owned his choice. Mm -hmm. And you'll never have to bug him the rest of his life because he owned it. Yeah, It's just different with the strong-willed kids because they have to touch that hot stove. And they have to learn by touching it and realize, oh, I'm not touching that anymore. So here are a couple things. One is um, your tone. And this will, I think this will be hard with you. Yeah. For for you because you're – you're a teacher, right? And, yeah. and you want to give all these life lessons and you're, you're an explainer. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Explaining doesn't work in the moment with those kind of kids. It just, right. it just won't. So I was just picturing if I'm in the um, elevator with him, my tone goes very even matter of fact. And so it goes almost like, oh, dude, sorry about that. Hit the button. No, you wanted to do it. But he's going, ah, ah. you know, he starts his thing. I'm yeah. like, seriously, dude, come on, come on. Uh, this is a button. Like, I'm not going to, I'm not dismissing it, but I'm also not going to play into it when it's that, because that was a pretty simple thing. So acknowledge But love is not easily offended, right? That's what I keep telling. Like, you can't be easily offended. It's now, okay to get. that to your five-year-old? Yeah. Okay, right. stop, stop. <laughs> I, I can get that because I'm 49, almost yeah. 50. Yeah. But that's. That's too I much. Think, I think it's too much of wanting it's kind of we talked about of wanting so badly for yes. my child to get this lesson yeah instead of letting him own it and being yeah. able to say like hey jacob uh, got it got you're frustrated yeah totally get that you're frustrated but not because once you start going into that oh honey you know what i know you know but you know love isn't easily offended and he's like seriously mom don't be pulling out scriptural prints <laughs> on me i'm five <laughs> elevator it's almost, and, I, and I'm saying this because I really like you and I want to relieve you yes. of this pressure, but it's almost, it's so trying so hard all Working the time so because hard. you want him at five to learn, you know, when to get upset and when not. And that's not legitimate, but I'm almost not giving it any energy except that I will acknowledge and say, oh, where's my head? What was I thinking? You're like the master button pusher. So here's what we're going to do. On the way down or the way up, why don't you hit a button? Why don't you hit a couple buttons and we'll actually get off on a floor that we're not supposed to. Right. We'll run around. It's that kind of, some of it is a little bit of a, it's tough because you're thinking in the moment, but my tone goes almost like, 
He's starting to get upset and he's making it a big deal and he's creating drama. But I go, no drama. I'm like, dude, you pushed a button, didn't get to push a button. So on the way back, here's what we're going to do. And then almost go with that tone. So you're acknowledging and moving it forward. I'm also getting a moving. And so Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if we mentioned it last time, but one of my favorite phrases is motion changes emotion. Right. So motion or movement. And this is hard because I know the mom's listening to be like, but I'm just trying to be a good mom. And I know you are. Yeah. But it's these kids, there's a, you know, if we can explore this for a minute, because I, the tone thing is really important. Yeah. The tone for me is I'm a neutral observer here. I am a giver of wisdom mm-hmm. and I'm not so, I'm not just your mom or dad who needs you to, I don't need you to make a good choice mm. right now. I want you to, but I'm okay if you don't. And I want you to own, if you want to be upset because you didn't get to push a button, I'm perfectly okay with you being upset. Yeah. And and I have to get to that point where I'm like, I'm okay with you being upset. I often quote Kirk Martin in my talk I do on anger because he talks about you can't control your kids. You can only control your response and inviting your kids into your calm space. Um, if you have the four-year-old tantruming princess, he's got great tips for you. Definitely go check out the other episodes I've done and He does have his own podcast, Celebrate Calm. All right, our next guests, they have been on 10 times total, Jim and Lynn Jackson. When I discovered their work through Connected Families, it was like, oh my goodness, what in the world? This is exactly what I've been looking for. So grateful for their voice in this space. And I think that others have taken some of their work and even expounded on it. And just, I I hope that this is more the way parents are thinking when it comes to being a Christian and parenting our kids. And so here we go. This is episode 80, the first time Jim and Lynn Jackson were on the show. You said that that what we do encourages parents rather than making them feel like they can't do the formula right. Yeah. And I mean, that's where we started too. We started with, with uh, as, as parents of young kids, we wanted to get it right. And we went to the resources and there was all kinds of resources that you know, that, that told us about the importance of passing our faith, but then went right to how to deal with kids' misbehavior in order to get them to obey. Mm. Like, that's the, that's the main goal of parenting, as we sort of read it and distilled it from all the different resources. And if you've got a strong-willed child, you got to get them to obey. you got to break their will. And if you've got kids that are out of control in different places, you know, you got to demand obedience, and you got to be the parent, and it's got to be the first time. And all of this focus was on getting kids to obey, and, and yet there was this big-picture thing like, that tapped into our hearts. So the introduction of almost every one of these books was like, yeah, we want kids who will embrace faith and know Jesus and have compassion for the world. And we had these great big picture desires for our kids. But then right away, these books would tend to go into sort of behavior management programs, how to get our kids to behave so that when they learn to obey, then they can embrace God's heart. And that just left us feeling discouraged. Like we couldn't get it right. We never did. And and we'd follow the method and it wouldn't go the way the book said it should. And then we felt defective and discouraged as parents. Yeah. And uh, we, we kind of figured out early on. And then as we started working with other people's kids and their parents, um, that there was this, this overarching, especially in the church for, for the, for the parents who had big challenges that the, the typical things didn't work for. There was this overarching discouragement. Mm. Well, we want to encourage people, and by encourage, it's not, you know, nag them or give them the right formula, but fill them with courage to be a different sort of a parent. And the different sort of a parent is a parent who who admits right out loud, I can't get this right. Mm. And, and honestly, 
by, by being able to say that and say that I'm dependent on Jesus and I'm going to blow it. And we say that to ourselves and we say it to our kids. We, we create a foundation of grace for ourselves right away. But here's what I'm moving toward. I'm moving toward not getting you to behave right, but helping you to develop and grow in wisdom centered on belief in who God is, who he made you to be, uh, who Jesus is, what it means to walk in repentance and under the umbrella of God's grace and truth. And so we move the focus away from behavior and onto belief mm. with the belief that even mom and dad, we and I, you know, she and I can't get it right. And so we say that out loud to each other, which gives us grace for each other. <laughs> right. And then, and then we say it out loud to the kids, which gives them grace for us. And then it sets a tone for starting to move toward, well, what are these messages? What are, you know, like if, if I could be the parent I wanted to be, what kind of parent would I be? Not if I could have the kind of kid that I want to get how would I get them? But if I could be the kind of parent that I want to be, how would I be that parent? And that's where this framework comes from. So you can picture a rectangle at the bottom of this diagram labeled foundation. And that's what's going on in me as a parent. And then we're going to unpack in just a little bit a triangle, which represents the different kinds of effort or energy or relationship styles that I have with my child. But all that rests on this foundation of what's going on in me. Mm. You know, the, the primary message that we want to communicate to our kids out of our foundation, which really kind of what's going on in me emotionally and spiritually, the, the primary message we want to communicate to them is that they are safe with us. And that means we have to unpack our baggage mm. as parents. <laughs> and really understand it and own our part of the misbehavior when we have a brouhaha with our kids. And it also means we have to really look at calming ourselves down in the heat of the moment so that we're safe. Mm. So unpacking the baggage part, that's kind of a, a, a spiritual journey for parents. And I really experienced that with our oldest son, Daniel, who was so intense. Um, and when I was a discouraged mom, I just had this recurring belief that was, I'm an angry mom raising an angry child, and when he gets to be a teenager, it's going to be horrible. Mm. Just was that was in my brain a lot, especially when we conflicted. Reshape those beliefs so that I wasn't throwing my baggage at him every time we interacted. Mm. And so I could embrace a belief eventually that was I'm an intense mom raising an intense child, and we butt heads, but we love each other. So that shifted everything in my relationship with him and, and just made it so much easier to really parent for his good and not parent out of my anxiety, anger, and fear. That what you're talking about, this process of, of taking our thoughts, our recurrent thoughts, the, the six or seven that I had just yesterday before the Lord, weighing them against the truth of the word, that, I think, is the discipline that we're told of in Hebrews chapter 12 that is painful. Mm. Parents tend to use that section as a parenting verse, you know, like, okay, I need to inflict pain on my child so that they learn about discipline. And that verse wasn't written about parenting. That verse was written about the difficult, painful work of, of discipline to yielding our will to the will of the Father, yielding our thoughts to the mind of God. Mm. Uh, and, and, and it's difficult and it's painful. And until we do it, we can never expect by some simple formula to help our kids understand what the discipline of the Lord is really all about. And that's what growing a strong foundation for parenting really is. When we can bring that calm and that grace-filled perspective to discipline challenge, then we can relate to our kids in, 
in with sort of three ways of relating to them that are all really essential ingredients in how God relates to us as well. And the first one, so now we're on this triangle section that rests on the foundation. And the first level, or you could say almost a story yeah. in this A-frame building, is um, connect. And that's where we give our kids the message, you are loved, you, you are enjoyed, and I love you no matter what. That is not up for grabs. And that's just such a key message. This is where the gospel comes alive in discipline, you know, because Romans 5, 8 tells us God demonstrates his love toward us while we were still sinners. Not while we had our act together, but while we were misbehaving, Christ died for us. And it's also an example of Romans 2, 4, where God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. So there's lots of examples of ways that you can do that in discipline situations when your child is struggling you know, just stopping and even smiling at them, offering a hug, getting down on their level, you know, when it's all crazy, instead of coming in with the big energy of, all right, you guys, stop it here, stop it. Come in, whoa, it's really crazy here, isn't it? Anybody want a hug? You know, that kind of big connective energy. So there's lots of things that we can do in that um, principle that really connects with our child's heart and can sometimes bring repentance right in that moment. We've just had some wonderful stories from parents where, you know, when they expressed to their child, you know, you really misbehaved here, but I love you no matter what. Child bursts into tears because they really had no idea. Parents think kids get this message for them, from them, but they really, they really don't get it. So we suggest, we say, you know, number one, it's normal for us to get in these habits. It's, it's normal to do what we got taught to do and then to find it especially in this day and age with all the different influences on our kids, more difficult to see fruit from using those sorts of habits. And so, you know, for us, the question is, well, at what point does that habit, you know, what point in that progression do you recognize that habit is going to lead you inevitably to this outcome? Mm. And what would you like to do different? If, if you could just sort of take all of your difficult emotion out of it, all of your, your self-hatred, your, your dislike of your child, you're predicting in your mind, so you've got a judgment, it's going to go bad before you even start, you know, at what point in the process would you like to start your do-over and do it differently? And, and you know, for every parent, that, that answer is different. But, you know, some parents break the habit by saying to themselves, I'm going to let go of my need to have that kid get their homework done by nine o'clock. If they don't get their homework done by nine o'clock, that's their problem, not mine. I'm going to love them anyway and just identify and empathize with the trouble or, or the, the negative consequence that's going to happen because their homework's not done. But I'm going to posture myself gracefully toward my child at all costs rather than in a controlling sort of a way. To simplify what Lynn just said in answer to your question, what Lynn did in that process was she, A, before she got into trouble, mm. in the discipline of her thinking, she named the kind of parent she wanted to be sourced by God's grace for her, mm -hmm. God's teaching for her, God's love for her. I would like to be a mom who connects better with my child when he struggles and not go right to lecture. Mm. So break the connect. I want to break the lecture habit with a habit of connection. That's the kind of mom I would like to be. So she named it in her private life. Then she said it out loud in her public life, both to her kids and to her spouse. This is the kind of parent I would like to be. I'm not going to be perfect at it, but when I'm not this parent, instead of lecturing me and telling me what a screw up I am, would you just help remind me and then give me some grace? Mm. And so even our young kids got in a pattern when we weren't the parents we said out loud we would like to be of saying, uh, was that how you wanted to be? <laughs> just like a simple we, little phrase, a reminder. Yeah. If, 
Yeah, just yeah. what kind of parent would you like to be? Have you named it before the Lord? Have you let him, number one, grace you with this idea that having named it doesn't mean you're going to be it. It just means that's what, the, that's what the heart is that I've given you. But the sin that so easily entangles really does. So I'm going to journey with you, parent, with my grace. But I'm glad that you named it because now we can work with that. And you can say it out loud. You confess it to me, to your family. Then she went in and because she had named it and said it out loud to family, and now it was natural for her to practice it with her son, and it, and it bore different fruit. Now, he could easily have, have splashed in her face. Like kids sometimes, especially when this is all new, they're like, that's weird. That's new. What's that really all about? I'm used to controlling my mother by getting her to freak out at me, so I'm going to splash her in the face with suds yeah. when she, she loves me no matter what. And, you know, at that point, it's a different deal. But what kind of parent do you want to be? Have you said it? So when he does that, if he does that, uh, you know, to just be able to back away from that and say, oh, it looks like you didn't like hearing that just now. That's okay. You settle down. I'm going to leave. I'll come back and we'll try it again or we won't try it again. Those clips came from episode 80 titled Help Your Child Feel Safe and Loved. And there was a part two of the conversation where they go over the next layers in that pyramid of their framework. And if you want to learn even more from Jim and Lynn, they have online courses that are fantastic for sibling relationships, for discipline that connects, and for parenting sensitive and intense kids. Lynn has come on and talked about that more recently. If you are familiar with her voice and you're like, where have I heard her before? She came on recently and talked about that. And she's an occupational therapist. And so she has great insight. If you have a child with sensory needs, go check out those episodes. Last, but certainly not least, our final inductee into the DMA Five Timers Club is none other than my hubby, Bruce McFadden, with a whopping eight times on the podcast. And I was trying to decide which episode to go with, and I landed on the one that I feel like people have talked to us the most about afterwards. It's entitled The Right to Change Your Mind. It's episode 196. Here we go. One thing that you've started saying is well i've actually been saying it for a long time oh sorry i just well i say well i I probably (laughs) started saying it at home more often but when you're in a high growth environment um, you have to try lots of things and you also have to be willing to um, to to realize when you're wrong and you know i'll I'll use an example somebody shared a long time ago with me um america online aol Back when they were a relevant dynamic business in the late nineties, because obviously they're long gone. But and no, nobody has an email address at aol.com. If right. you do, guys, Godsender mom at aol.com. No, don't, don't go don't, to that. Don't go. Don't, don't that use doesn't it. exist. But what they they actually had an award, and it was called the Fast Fail Award. Fast um, Fail. Okay, tell me about that. So Fast Fail Award. Basically, what it meant was if you had a project that you were um, obviously they were creating lots of um, new businesses. And if they somebody had a project that they realized was not going to work and they shut it down, they actually potentially could win this award for the Fast Fail Award. And it was a respected award. It wasn't something you wanted to win all the time, but it basically recognized and it wanted to reward people who said, look, we tried something and we took a risk and it didn't work and we're going to shut it off rather than try to keep it going. I think it goes with what I was reading in Brene Brown staring greatly. It's like sometimes there's so much fear of failure or fear of shame because of failure, that we don't take risks, we aren't vulnerable, we don't step out there into the ring because of what other people might say or do or the response we're going to get at work. And if you've created an environment that it's okay to take a risk and for it to not work out, 
I think that's what you've, they've created. Yeah. That, is, that is exactly right. So the, the, the mantra really since then, I think I probably learned about this eight or nine years ago, um, my first early stage company I was involved with is we started just saying, feel fast and feel fast could be a, a project we're working. It could be a product. It could be an employee. It could be realized that we hired somebody and you know what, it's just not working out. You know, we're better off, um, feeling fast rather than trying to continue pushing forward. And you also say something else. Well, so that leads to what has become one of my, um, Mantra. Mantras, personal <laughs> cliches, I don't know. And it is, I always reserve the right to change my mind. Yeah. So to use, I know we talked about Strange Finder in previous Episode. podcasts, but I'm an activator. And um, anybody, fellow activators on the podcast, um, it just means I, I like to go quickly. And activators, when they hear something or they have an idea, they just want to go immediately into it. And they don't really think through all the ramifications of that decision. And, you know, by using, it was really a lot of the exploration through Strengths Finder made me realize when you really begin to accept, like, who I am, like, well, how am I gifted? Um, when you really begin to accept that, you begin to kind of realize the good and the bad that come with it and just embrace it and own it. And one of the things I had to embrace and own as far as the activator was I do make fast decisions, uh, but I also probably make more wrong decisions than most people. I'm going to make more mistakes. And I just had to accept that. Like, I'm going to make some bad calls. But I'm also getting a lot of things going and actually move some good things along as quickly as possible. What I, I was working at that time with somebody who was, to use strengths finder terminology, they were very deliberative, which is somebody who wants to think through every single way a decision can go wrong before they make a decision. They can be very slow to getting to choices. And when yeah. you're with an early stage business, oftentimes you have to try and throw away or try and adjust. And so I began probably seven or eight years ago to use the mantra, especially within business, was I always reserve the right to change my mind. I'm Wait, always let's say it. Let's say it again. I always reserve the right to change my mind. Right. It gives freedom in whatever parenting choice or family life decision or work scenario. Or maybe maybe you've decided to go back to work and it's not working out. And so maybe you're going to stay at home. Maybe you've chosen to stay home and it's not working out and you want to go back to work. Like to give you the freedom that it's okay if you made that big decision, you posted it all over Instagram, everybody knows, like it's okay to change your mind. But it's also okay to give grace to others who change their mind. Yeah, right. Yeah. Don't I mean, it's label not just somebody. about us changing our mind, but it's allowing other people to change yeah. their mind. If we could have that culture of, you know what, fail fast, it's okay change your mind it's okay yeah i mean there's core things that we're committed to obviously right but but i say this because this, this actually ties in it's a little bit different side of the same thing but i uh the, the car was all smashed up the front was smashed completely in but for whatever reason the car would turn on and drive and it must have looked ridiculous because it wasn't like a little bit I mean, the whole the whole, the whole front, front of the front car was, was smashed, smashed in. in yeah but the car dealership was like three miles away and i was like oh this will save a lot of time if i just drive and it drove and i drove to the dealership and so I dropped off the, the kids at like, you know, 755 or so. And um, I was at the And you got in the accident after that. Immediately, within, like less than a mile away from the school. Drove to the dealership by 830. I was at the Enterprise counter. You were getting your rental car. At the, getting the rental car at the body shop. And the, the lady at the Enterprise said, so what time did the accident occur? And I said, oh, 755. And she said, 755 p.m. I said, no, 755 a.m. And she looks at her watch and she's like, 35 minutes ago? And I said, yeah. And she said, this is easily the fastest I've ever had from wreck to rental car <laughs> counter. And I said, well, I said, 
I make a lot of mistakes. I make more mistakes than most people, but I've learned how to clean them up. Mm-hmm. So all of that ties in with all of this of saying, for me, I've gone the extreme of just recognizing I'm going to make a lot of mistakes. I'm going to let you tell everybody I'm going to make mistakes. And I'm going to change my mind. So how do we create that environment? Well, I think first is, rec- you know, recognizing that and acknowledging with our kids that we're going to change our mind and we're going to make mistakes. But I even still, like, I mean, I think we talk about changing our mind and making our mistakes with our kids and still... They, they don't want to make mistakes and change your mind. So I think s- some of that is just the nature, right? Obviously, Human as people. Nature, yeah. Well, you think of a school system. You make a mistake. It's a big red circle. You make a mistake. You get, you know, five minutes out of recess. It's like our whole, you make a mistake when you drive, you get a ticket. I mean, there are like big consequences for the bigger the mistake, the bigger the consequence. But yeah. within a home environment, if it's not like a life or death or like. Uh, I don't know. Well, be much more about just training them, not about avoiding mistakes, but about how do they handle when a mistake is made. And we're um, not talking about like you sign up for soccer and your kids three games in, they're like, I don't want to play anymore. I changed my mind. Yeah, that's different. Commit. Yeah, that's when you commitment. make a commitment. But yeah. so like with the puppy, do we make a commitment? That we broke? <laughs> Ooh. I remember Knox came up to me and he goes, I'm so glad I'm not a puppy. <laughs> remember this? I don't know if I, if I heard that. And I said, why? And he goes, well, if, if I'm bad, you're going to give me away. Sad. <laughs> okay. So the parts of that episode that I didn't include were of us choosing to bring a couple boys home for home to homeschool. And then one of them actually went back to traditional school in the middle of the year and then we had a puppy that we gave them for Christmas, and then we rehomed the puppy. Anyway, you can go hear that whole episode with the link attached. And then Bruce, again, has come on with so much wisdom from uh, just life experiences. He has great insight. Uh, that's it, y'all. Those are the five timers. There were several four timers. So maybe if I can get them back on the show, they will be inducted into the club. Those names include Paul David Tripp, Lisa Turkers, Mary Flo Ridley, and Megan Michelson of Birds and Bees, if you've never heard me talk with them, then definitely check them out. Uh, and Jeannie Cunyon, all in the Four Timers Club. So y'all got to come back on and you'll get inducted as well. I'm going to pray for us before we go. Lord, I thank you that we can know that we are just a tool in your hand, that you are the one who is working in the hearts of our kids. And I pray that we would get curious about whatever we're believing regarding Uh, our parenting and who we are and that we would get honest with you and then we would identify what kind of parent we want to be. And I pray, Lord, that we could create these life-giving spaces where there's a sweet aroma of your love and your grace and not of harsh rule-keeping lives that stifle the work you want to do in our kids. I pray, Lord, that you would guide us all to know you more. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, y'all. Have a great week. I'll see you back here next week for one more compilation episode. Adios. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Don't Mom Alone podcast. If you're wanting to connect with more people and more resources to help remind you that you're not alone, head over to don'tmomalone.com. That's where you'll also find show notes with any links mentioned by our guests. Most importantly, I want you to know the good news the great news that you're not alone because God has promised to always be with you. 
with faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died for you and rose again. Jesus said when he left, he was going to leave a helper, a comforter to be with us. God in us. Moms, that's superpower. So while you're washing dishes at your kitchen sink, while you're driving to and from work, while you're feeding that baby late into the night, while you're cleaning sticky floors, God promises to be just as present with you as when you're worshiping in a church pew. As it says in Zephaniah 3:17, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He takes great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love and he will rejoice over you with singing. Now that's good news. Have a great day.